This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation, and welcome to today's Bright Focus chat, Living Well with Vision Loss. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. I'd like to briefly tell you about Bright Focus and what we'll do today. Bright Focus funds some of the top researchers in the world. These are scientists that are trying to find better treatments and ultimately cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We share the news from the research world with, with families that are impacted by these diseases. We have a number of free materials on our website, brightfocus.org. And today's chat is another way of sharing what's new in the field of vision research and related issues. Let me tell you about today's chat, Living Well with Vision Loss. We're really excited to have a um, just, just a very interesting and very relevant guest, and that's Dr. Bonnie Sweenor. She is an associate professor of ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins University. At Johns Hopkins, uh, she, uh, in addition to being professor of ophthalmology, runs their Disability Health Research Center, and uh, their Center for Aging uh, is a core faculty member at their Center for Aging on Health. And she's with us today because in addition to being a professor and a researcher at one of the top uh, research centers in the world on, on vision disease, uh, Dr. Sweener herself uh, is a person living with with vision loss, and and we thought this would be a great opportunity to to, to hear from Dr. Sweener and um, learn a little bit more about what she does, and some, and uh, you know I think it might be uh, relevant and and really helpful for this audience. So, Dr. Sweener, I'd like to to welcome you to the Bright Focus chat. I was wondering if you could just tell us um, your uh, you know your background and what what led you to to become uh, a professor of ophthalmology. Yeah, well. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. I really appreciate the opportunity and this forum in general. Um, so, you know, my career trajectory certainly has not been a for straightforward path. It, it had many twists and turns, um, one of which was the onset of my vision loss. I began losing my vision in 2005 quite suddenly. Um, I have myopic macular degeneration, and it started with a retinal hemorrhage uh, at that time, and it was completely unexpected, and it happened at a time when I was applying to graduate school. I actually had my first retinal hemorrhage a week after I had applied to a master's program. Um, my vision loss then occurred pretty quickly. I had a pretty rapid decline in vision, um, multiple retinal hemorrhages in a, over about an 18-month period in just one eye and then in both eyes. And it really changed a lot of, well, everything, truly, about my life. Um, I stopped driving. I, at that time, was working at a science consulting firm, and I went on disability leave because I was having a hard time um, with reading, with keeping up. I ha had no experience at that moment in my life with ophthalmology, and it was just trying to make sense of what was going on and trying to figure out what the path forward was. Um, truly in that, those moments, I didn't believe I'd be able to be <laughs> where I am today. I didn't imagine that I could do this work because I did not know anyone else like me, a scientist with uh, vision impairment, with low vision. Um, but you know, I, I obviously <laughs> um, pushed through, and uh, because of that experience, it completely reframed my research. At that 
time when I began to lose my vision, I was studying uh, nutrition and cancer. But over time, realized that my passion and my interest really was trying to um, understand how to uh, work with people like me and who who had vision loss at the at the outset, and how to maximize life with vision loss. It's really interesting, and that that sense of that first person experience. How has that shaped your understanding or empathy or your perspective that, um, you know, as you said, probably few other scientists have? How has that experience kind of shaped your approach to what you do? Yeah, well, I really um, appreciate this question. I think it is it it it, it shapes everything. You know, it is the lens through which I. Uh, tackle my science, I absolutely view research differently. Um, the ways in which I do it are different. The ways I think about it are different. You know, a couple of years ago, someone asked me if I was a patient first or a researcher first, and I thought that was a really interesting question. And I think about that a lot. And it's hard for me to not say I don't come first with my experience as a person with vision loss. That is really what drives me. My research follows that. So my work is is chasing that experience, if that makes sense. And I think yeah. because of that, I, I do have a different approach. Um, I'm interested in understanding what patients want from a very different angle. And I also sort of have that street credit or that um, understanding when I talk to other people who have vision loss, you know, we don't have to explain so much, I guess you would say. And, and there's an understanding and a shared knowledge. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it shapes the questions I ask, the way I ask them, and quite honestly, the way I interpret data. Um, yeah. I view it as a very positive thing. You know, certainly vision loss is a challenge, but I think it has completely benefited my career. Yeah, that's really interesting. I appreciate that. And that, that are you a patient first or scientist first? A fascinating, fascinating question. And I was wondering, how has this led you to pick the research topics um, that you work on? So essentially, you know, sort of what do you, you know, what type of research do you do and how has that been been driven by by your uh, by your experiences. Yeah, so my research um, has three overlapping uh, areas, which are aging, equity, and disability, which includes vision loss. A heavy focus on vision. Um, those areas came to be. That came to be my focus, sort of organically. Um, I started out studying vision loss and the impact it has on people's lives. The majority of people with vision loss are older adults. And I appreciated the approach of geriatric research in that it thought about the whole person. And that's really what I was trying to accomplish. And then the idea of, of equity really followed closely behind. So the way I describe the work that I do is it's all about using data to change the paradigm from living with vision loss to thriving with vision loss. And what I mean by that is I'm interested in finding ways to really move the needle on how we think about life with vision loss, 
how we live life with vision loss, and honestly, how society views us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of work and, and focus on, you know, independence. And my work is, is using data to go beyond that, right? It's not just how many people with vision loss have a job. It's how many people with vision loss are CEOs, kind of an, uh, an example. Mm-hmm. I want to understand and um, create strategies and methods so that people can have maximum um, life experiences with the vision that they have. That's great. I've heard you say in other settings that you feel that that our society can have kind of an antiquated uh, view of view of um, of persons with vision loss. I was wondering if you kind of elaborate yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thank you for that question. Um, absolutely. You know, I. Uh, it, this idea, and, and when people reach out to me, which they do quite frequently, is it's an echo of this idea. You know, I think as society, it's not just for vision loss, honestly, it's for disability in general. It's an idea that when you have a disability or when you have vision loss, you're lesser. And we put all of our self-worth in many ways in this basket of, you know, independence or whatever we imagine that may be. And there is stigmatization, um, a downgrading of individuals in their role in society when they differ around certain aspects. So for someone with vision loss, there's a lot of thought. There's language that we use even in our own profession around, you know, the burden of vision loss, the burden on society. And, and that just perpetuates this notion. We need to change that and challenge that and recognize that even though your vision is different, you still are a huge contributor to our communities. You just do things differently. And I also just want to add that we do need to spend time and effort focusing not just on what an individual can do to maximize their health and interaction in society. We also have to spend time, energy, and resources on making society more inclusive, more universally designed, change exactly to what you asked me about, views of vision loss, views of people with disabilities, of what they can do. It's not focusing on what they can't do. And, you know, that to me really is the future. And that's, that is a core part of what I'm trying to accomplish with my data and my research. Yeah, no, I appreciate that perspective. I think you're right. I think we all consciously or less so uh, choose choose words or phrase questions in, in, in a certain way. I think that's a really interesting points that you made. Dr. Sweener, as you know, Bright Focus funds research on both brain uh, diseases, Alzheimer's and related dementia, as uh, in addition to the macular degeneration and, gl- and glaucoma that um, that we've been that we've been talking about, and uh, you know, my understanding of, of your your research and your your interests are at that at that um, at that nexus at that that intersection between um, vision health and cognitive health and brain health. I was wondering if you could talk about how uh, low vision in, uh, affects cognitive health, affects someone's brain health as they get older. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. You know, this tends to be a hot topic these days. Um, this interconnection between vision loss and the brain. And, um, you know, I just want to start by saying there's sort of two streams of research in this area. So the one is that there's 
uh, hypotheses and, and data showing that change is happening in your eye, particularly in the back of your eye, reflective of changes happening in the brain. So the idea here is there's a possibility that we can look into the back of someone's eye and be able to identify or project or tell what's going on in someone's brain changes, right? But that's actually not the work I do. The work I do is all about understanding how vision loss changes people's behavior, their physical activity, their social interaction, their mental well-being, and how that then could potentially put someone on a faster trajectory of cognitive decline. Because what we know in the broader population of older adults is those are the things social interaction, physical activity, um, and cognitive stimulation, so having hobbies, things like that, are, 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 and as well as depression, are really important factors that influence your brain aging. But we also know from my work and, and that of others is those things change for a lot of people with vision loss. And so my work is about piecing those puzzle pieces, piecing those pieces together so that we can understand that mechanism, that pathway to help people figure out what they need to do to age well with vision loss. And brain health is a huge part of that, right? And so I worry sometimes when I talk about my research in this space, I'm projecting this idea that you're sort of doomed to having cognitive decline if you have vision loss, because some of the data seem a bit damning when you think of uh, lack of a better word, but that's not the point. The point is that it's all about understanding this mechanism, this pathway, what we can be doing um, to maintain a healthy uh, brain as we age. And that may be a little bit different when you have vision loss. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that a person could do to uh, you know, kind of slow down that, that trajectory of, of um of cognitive decline if they have uh, re reduced vision? Yeah, so, you know, that work is ongoing, admittedly, but, you know, the learning lessons from the broader population of older adults, it's, you know, the things I indicated. So it's you know, maintaining physical activity, social interaction, um, doing whatever you can to, to have um, good positive mental health, um, engaging in hobbies, but we know that's just more challenging for people with vision loss, right? And so a lot of the strategies and interventions established for people as they age for physical activity, for example, is really not been tailored or for people with vision loss or people with vision loss haven't been considered in those, in those programs or strategies. And so, you know, I think for people who, who do have vision loss, understanding those still are the core components most likely, but they may need to um, make some changes in the approach to fit them, right? To fit their life, to fit, mm -hmm. you know, how, how do you maintain physical activity when you have vision loss? It looks different. Um, and that's the kinds of things we're working on. Yeah. No, no, I appreciate that. And you mentioned uh, depression a, a, a minute or two ago. Uh, I was wondering if, you know, are there, uh, are there particular challenges for people with low vision um, uh, when it comes to their mental health, um, sort of 
kind of, you know, what do you, uh, what have been some of your observations or uh, suggestions for, for that intersection between low vision uh, and depression? Yeah, you know, I, this is a great question. Um, I think for so long, you know, there's sort of this assumption that, of course, you're going to be depressed, you're losing your vision, right? And that's part of the thing I want to challenge, right? And so I want to start off by saying that. I think that is something we've got to take a hard look at um, and think about why is that our assumption that, of course, you should be, you know, we, we assume people are going to be depressed when they lose their vision. You know, that's sort of a societal manifestation that we've created an environment in society where that's sort of a reflex. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we've almost punted this mental health response that people do experience. And, and I want to honor that. That's real. I experience that. That, that <laughs> happens for, I think, most people who have a vision loss. Um, we, we sort of punt it all into depression and anxiety. I think we do need to dig deeper, though. Because from my experience, personal, some of my research, and talking to other people with vision loss, I think it's just much deeper than that. It is in part, and this is just me hypothesizing, admittedly, we still need to do more work in this space. It's in part a reflection, again, of the stigma and the stereotype of vision loss that we're internalizing. It's also in part self-efficacy. Right? When you start to lose your vision, um, it, it challenges that, and that does have an impact on your mental well-being. That's deeper and different um, mm -hmm. than depression and anxiety, but it's something we need to start to think about, those aspects. And there's not a lot of discussion around that, but I think we are now at a place that we need to, to think about those things. The other angle I would also add is social isolation and loneliness. Um, there, that has become on the forefront of public health and health concerns for many groups of individuals. We need to do more work um, for understanding how vision loss affects the way we interact with others socially. As someone with a retinal disease, I can assure you, uh, I, and, and I, you know, I know the research, I know the data, but I still feel myself withdraw socially. It's hard to recognize people's faces. It's hard in a group setting to know when someone's looking at you to talk to you. And, and these are real challenges that oftentimes result in you just interacting less. But what we need to also understand is there's a cost to that. What is that cost? And then what are the strategies, both within myself as an individual with vision loss, but also in society and creating more you know, acceptance and universal design to to change that. No, I appreciate that. And I wanted to you know, stay on that for a, a couple more questions. But so it really struck uh, Dr. Sweeney at the, at the outset when you talked about how you were, um, I believe you said 25, when um, yeah. when your vision health, you know, first became a, you know, a real a real issue. And and you know, it just struck me as of you know, sort of at the beginning of of professional adult life and career. And so I wonder, you know, people kind of at all ages when there's professional plans, personal plans, goals, whether that's through, you know, career or retirement, like how, do, how does one, uh, you know, react to best react to such a, such a, a, a big and often abrupt change in, in kind of the, 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 the plans that they had had in mind for their lives? 
Yeah, yeah. I think this is a such an important question. You know, we don't always dig into this. And I guess I would answer, you know, first that I'm I'm not sure at any age it's not a huge, you know, a, a, a big challenge. I, I talk to a lot of um, retirees and, and they're feeling it in different ways. They've made plans, right? And now they feel like their plans and they saved and they worked towards something and, and now they feel like they're all thrown out the window, right? I think from from my perspective, first of all, that's a real feeling, right? And and just acknowledging I think that it's very real and okay to, to feel that way, but I think equally important to recognize you're not alone. And for me, that was one of the harder parts of it is I didn't know anyone else like me. I didn't have anyone else to talk to. And when I found that, that was one of the biggest changes in my life. Um, I've seen that. I've felt that from other people who have contacted me and, you know, and have said, you're one of the first people I've talked to like me. Um, I think that's just a really powerful human nature experience. And for a lot of people with vision loss, particularly when we're talking about, you know, age-related macular degeneration or glaucoma, it's not necessarily someone's identity always. So I don't think they're perhaps seeking out others like them, but they still are living with, you know, going through life in a different way. And that does impact individuals. Um, And so I think this change is heavy and it's hard, but, but, you know, navigating it is all about, at least for me, has all been about strategy and figuring out how to go forward. And a huge part of that is learning from others who have already done it. Um, And so I guess I encourage people out there to find ways to do the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that point. I want to kind of, you know, kind of pivot on that to sort of the whole making adjustments and asking for help. How did, um, how did that work for you? How did you go about um, making the adjustments to continue to pursue a career? And were you uncomfortable telling employers or others? Sort of how did you know? How do you did you begin to move forward? Yeah, um, it was a slow and hard process, and still remains to be one. Admittedly, I, I'm not going to pretend I have it all figured out. Not sure I ever will, but. You know, it was, I think asking for help is, is not within our culture here. You know, it is not for anyone for any reason. Um, When I first, you know, when I, when I first started losing my vision and um, was what I thought was really face like, it seems ridiculous to say that now, but felt like a life sentence. It felt like I was not going to be able to do the thing I wanted to be, which was a scientist. I I thought there was absolutely no way. I thought that ship had failed in those moments. And that was really, really hard. And I think at some point the, the change for me was I'd worked so hard to just get to where I was. And I got to a place where I thought, you know, I honestly have nothing left to lose. I might as well just try and figure this out piece by piece, step by step, day by day. Because if I try and I fail, you know, that's the the 
the girl going blind couldn't make it as a scientist. That's, that's, you know, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But that was me sort of buying into the social stereotype, quite honestly. And I had to let that go. I had to let go of my own internalization of what people with vision loss can and can't do. And that was my journey. And that was, still is. So, but I, the reality of it, the day-to-day was figuring out strategies. And that changes for me over time as I lose more and more of my vision, which I do each year. But it, I took a slow approach. So I started by taking one graduate class to test myself to see if I could do it. And I didn't do as terribly as I thought. And then I took two and, you know, and I kind of went from there. I was very um, protective of my status as someone with vision loss. I was very scared to tell anybody because I was afraid I would be judged, that people wouldn't want to work with me. Um, I, I didn't even know the right words. I didn't identify as someone with a disability. I didn't know that it was something to be discussed. I didn't ask for accommodations in my graduate school training in the beginning because I didn't I didn't know how to advocate. I didn't know I was able to ask for those things. Um, And so it was just, it was a learning experience and a journey. And again, at that time, I didn't have anyone else to help me through it. Um, I didn't know anyone else like me that could have given me that guidance. And um, as I started to figure things out and become a little more confident that this maybe was something I could do, and admittedly, there was lots of setbacks and challenges, but I, I over time got a little more confident and equal parts, I'd say, um, confident, but also a stronger feeling of I really don't have much left to lose, <laughs> you know, <laughs> might as well just keep going. Um, I, I just have kept moving forward. And, and as I indicated, I think connecting with other people who understood me, um, great mentors who supported me just accelerated that pace. I never imagined in a million years that I would be where I am today, truly. And I think, you know, I'm not special. I'm not, you know, exceptionally gifted in anything. I I work really hard, but I do think that it is my unique perspective that has gotten me here, Mm -hmm. quite honestly. And that's part of the message too I want people to understand is you know, when you start to lose your vision, your perspective does change. You you do change as a person. There's no, absolutely, there, there's no questioning that. But yeah. that doesn't mean you have less value. You probably have more in lots of cases. And it's mm-hmm. understanding that and harnessing that that is important for your self-worth, for your health, for so many parts of life. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And, and on the the... You know, for for folks on this call who may still be in the workforce or have friends and family that still are, um, how does how does it work uh, in, in in America in 2021 to tell your employer um, that you're experiencing vision loss? Um, what type of I know you're not a lawyer, but this sort of you know what's what's sort of the, the process or rights or or advice that you'd give uh, for someone in, that that is you know either in full time or part time workforce uh, that's experiencing vision loss. Yeah, this is a very good practical question, one I get quite a bit. Um, you know, so so there's the law, right, the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act, which um, prohibits discrimination in the workplace. But then there's the pragmatic approach, quite honestly. And so what I advise to people is you have to check in with yourself on where your comfort level is. So 
you know, I think if you're applying for a new job, that's a slightly different position than if you're, you know, have a new vision loss in a job you already had. I think if you're applying for a new job, you have to understand where your comfort level is and if you want to disclose at application or after maybe an offer. And there's, I don't think there's a right or wrong. Legally, there should not be, there could not, you're prohibited, the, the employer or potential employer is prohibited to discriminate. You know, but the reality is, is it happens. It absolutely happens, and I'm not going to, you know, mince words about that. However, I don't think for many people you would want to be at a place that would have a unsavory response to you disclosing. Mm -hmm. So if yeah. you are at a place where you have comfort talking about it, disclose it. That's, that's usually my suggestion. But I also recognize that there's situations and times and instances where you don't feel safe or you you know, just need a job because of financial reasons and, and you, you don't want to disclose. So I can't, you know, stare, just just have that yeah. as a uh, blanket uh, advice. Now, I think yeah. um, for people who have lost their vision or are already employed and, and have a new vision loss, you know, that also pr produces a different kinds of challenge. Oftentimes it will change dynamics, especially if you need an accommodation. Um, and there is a process for that, and there are protections on a legal level. However, you know, again, I think for people going through this, it, it behooves you, it's in your best interest to understand your rights, understand the iterative, iterative process in getting an accommodation to get the most out of it. I think a lot of times people expect that they'll ask for an accommodation and it is their employer's job to tell them the best accommodation for them. And it's really not, it's, it's, it's a conversation, it's figuring things out and that's sort of by design, but sometimes that falls apart. And so I guess all of that is to say, you know, this is still, I think a thorny issue for so many people. Yeah. And um, understanding how to advocate for yourself is still a, a critical component to this. Yeah. No, thank you. That's a great advice and perspective. We have two of our listeners um, have asked a similar question. Basically, they're they're looking, for, uh, uh, wondering about your daily life. Do you have any specific tools or apps or things that um, they think might be uh, uh, helpful for our audience to know that that help you in your daily life? Yeah, so, you know, um, I also get this question quite a lot. So I, I say the three things I use the most or the three strategies I have, um, I think, surprise people. So the two apps that have helped me the most in my daily life are Uber and Amazon. <laughs> and I know they're not um, low vision specific, but they changed my life. Right, I don't drive anymore. I don't do well in stores. I can't find items on a shelf. And um, so Uber has expanded where I can live, where I can go, and when I can get there. That's life-changing for me. And Amazon, I can order my groceries where I live. You know, I can order my groceries. I can order anything. And I never need to be in a store and just struggle to find things. Um, mm -hmm. those are on, those have honestly had the biggest impact on my life more than any other technology. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the other definitely. strategy, 
<laughs> and I know that that's surprising, but that's that's the truth. The other strategy is so you know my vision is I have central vision loss, so I still have peripheral vision, and it's you know confusing visual input. I have extreme visual fatigue. I get you know migraines, and I basically describe it as I have so much good vision that I can kind of power through and make sense of the world in any given day. I tend to use most of that for my job. So the majority of my life is built around not using my vision to do tasks I don't need to use it for. So if anyone would come to my home, it is meticulously organized and my kids and my husband know, you know, everything has to go back where it goes so I can find it without scanning or searching, right? The milk always goes where the milk goes or you know, I'm not a happy camper because then I've had to waste vision to search for it. My kids' clothes or my kids, you know, they, they're very good about it now. My clothes are in specific ways um, or specific places in my closet without variation because I don't want to waste the visual energy scanning and searching. And that, that just actually is something that has always um, helped me get through my day better with less exhaustion. No, it's interesting. I appreciate that. And Dr. Swinger, um, as we conclude, I, I, you know, I think it's safe to assume that you're a tremendously inspiring uh, person for, 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 for many people that are impacted by vision loss. And I wanted to kind of turn that around in the other direction. Um, and the people that you've interacted with through your, uh, through your work at Johns Hopkins uh, that have vision loss, what, what have you learned or in, been inspired uh, by from them? Mm. That's an excellent question. You know, hands down, um, my colleagues are completely dedicated to their patients, to the people they work with, work for, dedicate their lives to serving. Um, and that is goes beyond, I think, anything I could describe well um, knowing that is is has really been everything to me you know knowing that there are so many people who work tirelessly for people like me is is really an amazing thing and to be surrounded by that um, it has been has been inspiring for me it makes me feel less alone in um, a different way, but in a very important way. And I often wish I could articulate that in a broader sense so that more people like me, you know, living across the country yeah. could understand just how many people are dedicated to research, to care, who truly are spending day, night, weekends, hours um, for them. It's amazing. Yeah, no, I think that, I think it, yeah, that, that gratitude you mentioned, I think that allows, that allows you to continue to be able to do your work and to be, and to be helpful for, for people all across the country and all, all around the world. So no, it's been just a, just a, a really fascinating uh, conversation today. And again, Dr. Swinner, just appreciate your being so generous with your time and I really appreciate your, uh, your honesty and, and uh, in sharing your experiences. I hope that they're, uh, will be of value to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right.
Uh, my pleasure. Well, on behalf of Bright Focus Foundation, thank you to, to everybody who joined us today. We will be back May 26th uh, for a discussion um, uh, about safety and, uh, and older drivers. On behalf of Bright Focus Foundation, thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.